Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And since October is Vegetarian Awareness Month, let's get aware, Caroline. So aware. Yes. We're going to talk about vegetarianism and women. We're not going to focus so much on veganism for vegans listening, and I know you're listening. Uh, but there is, just with vegetarianism alone, there's so much to talk about. So why don't we kick off, though, with some stats, as we often do. Mm-hmm. How many people abstain from meat these days, Caroline? Yeah, I was actually surprised that the numbers were as low as they are. Uh, a 2012 Gallup poll found that 5% of Americans uh, consider themselves vegetarian, and that breaks down to about 4% of men polled and 7% of women polled, versus 2% of Americans who consider themselves vegan. And I don't. maybe I'm just randomly surrounded by so many vegetarians, but I thought those numbers would be way higher. Well, I think, I don't have the stat in front of me, but there are far more people who might not consider themselves strictly vegetarian, Mm -hmm. but are at least sort of vegetarian intentional. Mm -hmm. They'll eat some fish every now and then. They might eat, they'll they'll eat meat occasionally, but they try to have a meat limited Mm -hmm. diet. Yeah. So maybe, I mean, do you know just a lot of strict vegetarians? Mm. I have a a few in my circle. Maybe maybe they're just overrepresented in certain people. I don't know. Maybe so. What stood out to me, though, from this Gallup data was that it was more marital status than gender, Mm -hmm. which influenced vegetarianism, or at least was more strongly correlated to it, because they found that unmarried adults are more than twice as likely as married adults to be vegetarians. Makes total sense to me. Maybe that's part of it, too. We're just a bunch of unmarried folk all hanging out. Well, no, I mean, I, I'm thinking about this in terms of like, I know that my mother, I mean, she hates it, but she cooks every night for both her and my father. And so I know that like, she just cooks what he'll like, and then she eats it too. Right. So that could, that could be a factor at play. Women cooking meat for men. Well, I'm just so sick of trying to make two different meals. I'm not a short, short order cook. It's a tale as old as time. I tell you what. When it comes to veganism, though, the gender gap is much wider. It's about an 80-20 split with majority women abstaining from all animal-related products, not just meat. Hmm. And when you look uh, bigger, when you go global, as of a 2007 European Vegetarian Union poll, the numbers are not that far off from what they are in America. 3% of Australians say they're vegetarian, 4% of Canadians, and just 2%, though, in the U.K., And then, of course, you do have largely vegetarian cultures like India, which does consume the least amount of meat per capita than any country around the world, according to data from the U.N. Food and Agriculture Organization. And if we look at the history of vegetarianism, it's pretty fascinating because today I feel like we associate vegetarianism more with women. Mm-hmm. They give it more as like a female diet, whereas meat is the manly food. Yeah. Think about Ron Swanson mm-hmm. on Parks and Rec, he who cannot eat enough bacon. But the early history of it was driven largely by men. Yeah. So back in uh, 5 BCE, Pythagoras of triangles and theorems 
is born. Inspired by a Buddha, he actually became a vegetarian based on his philosophy around animals having souls and that could be reincarnated as humans. And so eating animals would therefore be unjust. And so thanks to his philosophy, later thinkers like Epicurus, Seneca, Plutarch and Plotinus adopted vegetarian diets of their own. And it's notable that since Pythagoras's time, We've been debating the ethics of killing and eating animals because in ancient Greece and Rome, really only the wealthy could afford to eat meat anyway. And that's kind of how it's been. Meat as something that that's a luxury for the wealthy has been sort of the standard until more far more recent history. But we've been kind of waffling about, well, is this OK that we're actually doing this? For a really, really, really long time. It didn't just start with the hippies in the 70s, (laughs) as your parents might try to tell you. Right. And uh, Pythagoras was so tied into this idea of eating a healthy vegetable based diet that the name of the diet was actually just called a Pythagorean diet. And this especially came about in 1745, which is when Englishman Robert Dodsley translated Pythagoras's philosophy on vegetarianism into English. Yeah, so if you were a vegetarian, they wouldn't call you a vegetarian at the time. They would simply call you a Pythagorean. And vegetarian thought in the West in the 18th and 19th century was not only influenced by Pythagoras, but was also influenced by contact with India, where vegetarian culture there was considered revolutionary, this idea that there could be this culture where animals were respected and revered and not simply killed and eaten. And there's also a lot of spiritualism, too, intertwined with early vegetarianism, as it was often seen as a path toward intellectual enlightenment and social uplift. If you could abstain from meat, if you could exercise that kind of manly willpower to do this thing for yourself, then you would be a better human. Yeah. And uh, in poet Percy Shelley's mind, this even applied to uh, Napoleon. Yeah. He once said, quote, had Bonaparte descended from a race of vegetable feeders, the liberator would never have crowned himself emperor because for a long time, and we'll talk about this more a little bit later, there has been this association between the consumption and production of meat and violence and aggressiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, one of our founding fathers who got super into the no meat thing was Benjamin Franklin. He uh, he tried out this Pythagorean diet. He he actually started out right with just water and bread. Yeah. And he felt very stout. Yeah, there was no Whole Foods yeah. at the time, so a vegetarian diet was pretty intense back in his day. But he noticed, you know, nerd alert, he noticed that the less meat he ate, the more money he saved, which, mean, which meant the more money he could spend on books. Oh, is, Ben. It's adorable and I love it. But what broke his meat fast was seeing a smaller fish in the belly of a cod that had been caught. And he was like, well, geez, all right, if y'all are eating each other, then surely you won't mind if I eat you. So, And then, yeah, and then he started eating meat again. But there are, you have a lot of figures like Ben Franklin of these leading intellectuals of this time who, if anything, at least dabbled in vegetarianism. It was very, I mean, it, it was... 
I don't want to say that it was in vogue, but it was definitely far more in existence than we might realize that it was um, today. And in pre-industrial revolution America, we ate very little meat. Again, unless you had money, you ate very little meat. And for some reason, Caroline, researching for this podcast reminded me so much of Little House on the Prairie. Like when they are out, all they have is the only meat they ever really eat is the salted pork hmm. and it's just mostly salted fat. So it's not mm-hmm. like you open up the fridge and like, oh, do I want chicken tonight or do I want sausage? No, meat was meat was hard to come by. I still just want the salted fat, though. I just want a ball of bacon. Mm. That's the perfect thing to say in our episode on <laughs> vegetarianism, Caroline. I am culturally sensitive. Um, well, so then in 1847, we finally get the term vegetarian coined with the founding of England's first vegetarian society. And then it really just takes off. Yeah, around the same time, the U.S. establishes its first Vegetarian Society as well, the American Vegetarian Society, which was started in 1850 by Sylvester Graham of Cracker fame. Yep. And also William Alcott, who was the father of Louisa May Alcott, author of Little Women, and also the co-founder, I did not know this, of Fruitlands, which was America's first vegetarian commune. Interesting. And vegetarianism is getting so popular and getting so many followers followers around this time that by the late 19th century, we start getting vegetarian cookbooks popping up. So you don't have to be like Benjamin Franklin and just rely on bread and water alone. This is also a key period in the vegetarian movement when Upton Sinclair in 1906 publishes The Jungle, which had a huge effect on both vegetarians, people deciding to forego meat, and especially on food reform movements, too. That's when we get the Pure Food and Drug Act and the development of the Food and Drug Administration. Yeah, it was actually in 1899 for the U.S. Department of Agriculture that John Harvey Kellogg, he of cornflake fame, (laughs) invented a meat substitute called Protos, and Kellogg actually had been working at the Battle Creek Sanitarium where he oversaw from 1895 to 1905 the development of 100 new health foods, interesting, including Protos, which I want to say sort of tastes like peanut butter. It has a nutty flavor. Yeah, something we read was talking about how many, many, many people have tried to recreate it just based on like flavor and they've used peanut butter and like onion powder and other things. I'll stick with tempeh and peanut sauce. Sawdust. <laughs> Some sawdust. Um, yeah, but it is, it is interesting that th- at this period there is so much activity and thought going into food, like you said, food reform, how the food is being produced. This is when you have the era of uh, banting and the banting diet. This is when we first start thinking about, well, maybe we shouldn't eat certain things. How does this affect our health? And vegetarianism was was relatively hot and it was also hot with suffragists. Yeah. And so up until this point, you know, we've talked a lot about the men who were leading the charge in vegetarianism and how a lot of this had to do with your health and what you ate and feeling better during the day because of what you ate. But with suffragists, a lot of suffragists adopting a vegetarian diet, this is when we start to see a rise in ethical vegetarianism deciding consciously not to eat meat because of the way that animals were treated. Yeah, because in addition to 
the health rationale that a lot of men adopted for going vegetarian, there was also a lot of it was kind of self-serving in the sense of like just being a better human, being more enlightened, etc. Mm-hmm. Whereas with suffragists who were early crusaders in the anti-vivisection movement, there was more of a compulsion to not harm the animals as well. And not to say that all the male vegetarians just didn't care about animals either. They were just trying to lose weight or something like that. But there was a very clear tie between this fight for women's rights and not necessarily a fight for animal rights, but rather uh, ending violence and oppression toward animals as well. Yeah. And a lot of this is coming from a really interesting essay by Leah Lineman from 1997. It's called The Awakened Instinct, Vegetarianism and the Women's Suffrage Movement in Britain. And and not to say that, uh, you know, British suffragists were the only women who participated, because certainly we had in the American Vegetarian Society women like Susan B. Anthony, Lucy Stone and Amelia Bloomer, who were attending some of those early meetings. But this essay is a super interesting look at not only just the issue of ethical vegetarianism and how it ties in with the feminist movement and the push for women to be able to vote, um, but it also actually brings the whole thing to life. There's plenty of really colorful quotes from these women about uh, why they decided to be vegetarians. One woman, Leonora Cohen, said that even if vegetarianism weren't the best diet, she would stick with it because of humanitarian motives. And there were articles, a lot of articles on vegetarianism published in the 1890s in the radical suffrage journal Shafts that outlined how to adopt vegetarian diets. And they didn't delve too much into the philosophy of, you know, kindness towards animal and com- uh, that moral aspect of it. But it was uh, more about time saving in the kitchen and also, again, this symbolic connection between handling meat and violence being associated with meat and these housewives who would be expected to cook the meat usually for their husbands because if you could afford meat you didn't have a lot of income only could afford a little bit of meat the meat would go to the men of the household Mm -hmm. and these women were saying I don't want to handle this stuff. This is dead flesh. And it came to a violent end. And why should I be the one having to touch this meat for my husband? Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Um, and I think it's interesting how, you know, because Chris and I have obviously talked about the suffrage movement on the podcast before. But vegetarianism among these women doesn't really come up so much. But at the time, I mean, it was something that a lot of them were talking about to the point where even back in April of 1907, the Vegetarian Society noted, quote, it is interesting to see how vegetarianism becomes related to progressive movements. Quite a number of the leaders in the women's suffragist movement are vegetarians. And since this uh, particular paper that we're focusing on also focused on British suffragists who had more militant fringes among them and tended to get tossed in jail, I think a lot more frequently than American suffragists, um, there are lots of letters of suffragists from jail talking about how they were either marveling at how kindly the guards gave them, you know, vegetarian meals or how they had to, they were being force fed 
meat or meat related products mm-hmm. um, sort of as punishment if they requested vegetarian food. Well, there was also advice. They were writing about advice that was floating around about how, hey, now that you're like on our team of suffragist people, um, maybe you should consider a vegetarian lifestyle because you'll get fed way better in prison. And adding another layer to this, you not, you not only have prominent suffragists at the time who were adhering to vegetarian diets and also preaching vegetarianism. In the late 19th century, this field of esotericism called theosophy was also very popular among suffragists. And it's sort of a intersection of mysticism and philosophy, and it overlapped a lot with vegetarianism. So, again, this is such a fascinating snapshot of time when you have all of these social movements afoot that are undergirded by a lot of spiritualism and mysticism, mm-hmm. not necessarily what you would think of for that time in terms of like straight meat-eating Protestant people. Yeah, because women definitely at the time were noting the overlap with this whole field of theosophy, sort of like looking at the mysteries of of being and the mysteries of nature and how they have to be the, quote, voice for the voiceless the animals, but they're also the voice of the voiceless for themselves, too. Yeah, I think a lot of them found uplift through theosophy. Um, and it, it's also notable, too, that the vegetarian societies at the time also gave voice to these women, which, I mean, if, if you've listened to our episode a little while back on women in the abolition movement, women were not always welcome to come and speak openly mm-hmm. at gatherings, um, but they were welcome at a lot of vegetarian society gatherings. Yeah, to the point where in 1910, Canadian suffragists even opened a vegetarian restaurant at their Toronto headquarters. But there was one uh, one side note to this that Caroline and I both got a kick out of, because not only were some vegetarian suffragists concerned clearly with what they were putting on the plate for their families to eat, but also what they were putting on their heads. There was, uh, in 1909, an article in the Votes for Women journal that alerted female readers to the murderous millinery, essentially calling out women for wearing hats that were very fashionable for the day with bird feathers and other animal parts on them or wearing furs. They called it the inhumane and revolting fashion of using beautiful birds for the purpose of personal adornment. Yeah, there were a lot of of angry letters flying back and forth about uh, being opposed to wearing fur and feathers and anything like that. And why do you have to keep yourself warm under slain animals? Which I think was co- kind of controversial because mm-hmm. some suffragists were like, "Hey, listen, I I like my uh, my my feathered chapeau, and we'll keep it thusly." And and Kristen, I I like I like your imaginary woman's attitude. Uh, it it fits well with an attitude that uh, I picked up in in this same essay. Um, there were several women who were discussing in letters and whatnot the whole theosophy thing and being the voice of the voiceless. But in terms of this, um, they were talking about basically the feminization of society. And they know, they did note at the time that there was a lot of fear among men that society was becoming more feminized. And part of the feminization was vegetarianism, that it was already becoming more associated with women because, oh, you're just eating vegetables, whereas I'm a manly man and I eat meat. And so I really, what I really appreciated was the attitude of some of these women who were saying, 
Okay. You think vegetarianism is too feminine. You think that we're feminizing society by pushing for the vote and by pushing for you to eat less meat. Well, you know what? Maybe the world would be a better place if the world is more feminized and we do eat less meat. So take that. Well, and the idea of vegetarian being a feminine thing is also revisionist history. Yeah. If, if you go way on back to Pythagoras and even I'm sure people before Pythagoras, it seems like meat really more than being a gendered thing. What has remained so constant is meat as a symbol of status, mm-hmm. because not only did it represent your status socially, if you could afford it for your whole family, then you were doing pretty well. But then even if you were a poor family, the status within the household would be demonstrated by the guy, the the guy, the husband, the father getting the choicest cut of whatever meat there was. Right. And then it trickled down to the wife. She essentially, I mean, the wives of this time and probably even today, too, ate whatever was left, mm-hmm. you know. So it's just so I wonder if maybe that fear of vegetarianism being a sign of the world becoming more feminized is more rooted in the fear of some, you know, status symbol being taken away. Then how do you prove your manliness if you don't have your steak in front of you? Yeah. How are you going to have your pudding if you don't eat your meat? (laughs) This is true. You can't have any pudding, Caroline. Well, so we'll talk about sort of the the modern advancements in society that led to actually more meat eating and then how that ends up tying into masculinity even more when we come right back from a quick break. So it seems like in the history of vegetarianism, when we move into the 20th century, the Industrial Revolution and advances in transportation and refrigeration technology rained on the parade a bit because it drove up meat consumption because it made it more available and cheaper for more people. So like I said a little while ago in the podcast, pre-industrial revolution, meat eating was still relatively scarce, especially compared to today's meat centric diets that a lot of Americans and people outside of America uh, follow but then it's like once we have meat at the ready, we eat it. And vegetarianism falls by the wayside a little bit. I mean, I think that was true, especially in the early periods of early period of the century. But in 1944, there was a bright spot for the veggie community because Donald Watson, with the founding of the Vegan Society, coins the term vegan. And then when you get into the 1970s, we start to see an uptick again in vegetarianism. This is it's sort of cyclical how it comes and goes. And around this time, you start seeing more cookbooks, just like we did back when it first became pop, really popular in the 19th century. You start seeing cookbooks that are addressing the lack of protein, so you're not just getting like terrible meat substitutes and protose and whatever. Or going the, the Bren Franklin route of bread and water. Right. You're actually seeing cookbooks that are finally being like, oh, hey, here's how to address your lack of protein, not substitute meat with something weird and gross. And in addition to giving people the tools for cooking and more easily adhering to a vegetarian diet, you also have 
vegetarianism being stimulated more conceptually as well, particularly with the 1971 publication of Francis Moore LePay's Diet for a Small Planet, which keep in mind in the 1970s, only 1% of Americans were vegetarian. And then in 1975, the animal rights movement launches with the publication of Animal Liberation by Peter Singer. So this is why we often today associate vegetarianism with the 70s. Well, you know, right before uh, Animal Liberation came out in 1974, the magazine Vegetarian Times launched, which is also the same year that the magazine High Times launched. Lots of social things going on. Oh, yes. In the 1970s. Yeah, the 70s was ripe for a vegetarian movement. And we got to get back to feminism as well. In 1975, Carol J. Adams publishes an article that makes the first prominent connection between feminism and vegetarianism. So she's bringing back the suffrage thought of, by that point, yesteryear. And then she publishes in 1990, we're, we're skipping forward a bit, But then in 1990, she publishes the landmark Sexual Politics of Meat that really outlines the history of this connection, in which she also talks about the the connections between the suffrage movement and vegetarianism. And just for an idea of what she's getting at with the sexual politics of meat, in which she really maintains that all oppressions, whether it's oppression toward women, people of color, animals, they're all connected and essentially revolve around white patriarchy. So she says, people with power have always eaten meat. Women, second-class citizens, are more likely to eat what are considered to be second-class foods in a patriarchal culture, vegetables, fruits, and grains rather than meat. The sexism in meat eating recapitulates the class distinctions with an added twist. A mythology permeates all classes that meat is a masculine food and meat eating a male activity. Yeah. Well, because she talks about, as do uh, many other uh, writers out there, talk about the language that surrounds meat and meat eating. And I mean, especially today, if you look at magazines, for instance, like popular culture, health advice, a men's magazine is way more likely to be making the Tim Taylor tool time like wolf noise over cooking a hamburger than a woman's magazine. A woman's magazine is going to what? Tell you to go eat a salad and a lean chicken breast at most. Well, and it's the whole distinction between women cook, Mm -hmm. men grill. They grill their meats. And if you even, this is something that Adams focuses on a lot as well, is how that language that we often apply to the descriptions of meat, how we eat meat, how it tastes, is also often applied in sexist terms to women's bodies. Right. We are, we're juicy pieces of meat. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's, I think the, I, well, I mean, I don't think, I know, and Adams points out that um, just the idea, the idea of not eating meat is like threatening to certain perceptions of masculinity. I mean, you know, there are so many men, especially in stereotypical pop culture, who, you know, it's not a real meal if you don't have meat. Just before I came into the studio, I was talking with Dude Roommate about this topic. And when I said that we were talking about how meat and meat eating and grilling and cooking is so aligned with masculinity, he was like, yeah. 
real men, you know, that kind of thing. Well, there is, I mean, some might say, well, there's the science to it. There's the fact that men have more muscle mass and we need the animal protein to bulk up in that way. So there, there are excuses that get thrown out, but it's a lot more telling when you consider the whole social status aspect, at least in my reading of our sources for mm-hmm. this, where, of course, eating meat is a manly thing, because since the, the dawn of time, since the dawn of grilling meats, it has been... It's been a source of status. Yeah. And so many studies that we looked at pointed out that men are much more likely to say that meat eating is fine. It's good. Um, they they don't care so much about uh, how the animal is gotten, <laughs> how the animal flesh is procured, whereas women are not only more likely to say that they eat less meat, and they're also way more likely to feel guilty about the meat that they do eat. Yeah, there was a study by Hank Rothberger that came out in 2012, and I, he's since done a follow-up study on this too and i just want to read the study title of this because it's one of the best study titles i've seen in a long time it's called real men don't eat vegetable quiche masculinity and the justification of meat consumption and it was a small study among a group of per usual undergraduate students almost exclusively white so grain of salt there but it did confirm this connection between just our ideology of masculinity and meat and the more that the guys in the study identified with uh, different scales of masculinity, then the likelier they were to really espouse meat eatings. And in the follow up study that he did, he was looking at whether women even lie about how little meat they eat because we now have it so divided. Like we know that a meat-limited diet is healthier for us than a meat-heavy diet at yeah. this point. And so many women's magazines these days, too, are so, like, veg-friendly, yeah. which is fine. But that's, he thinks some women actually are like, well, no, I, they distance themselves. Right, but that ties back into the whole ethical vegetarianism thing, because in looking at the levels, the amount of meat that men and women say they eat... uh They basically tested this by saying, hey, could you answer this questionnaire right before we show you this video from PETA about how animals are abused and uh, tortured before they are turned into the meat on your table? And so then the questions were about how much meat do you eat? So they were being primed with this idea that you're about to see something horrific about how animals are slaughtered. The men, the control group, and then the men who were told they were going to watch the video It was stable, basically stable, the amount of meat that they reported that they would eat on a regular basis. But the women who were told, primed by saying, you're going to be watching this horrific video, you awful meat eater person, you, they reported eating so much less meat because they felt guilty. Oh. Yeah. Well, side note, though, on PETA and women, they are a constant offender when it comes to their overtly sexist advertising, which completely plays into exactly what Carol J. Adams is talking about in terms of the descriptions of meat being used in the descriptions of women's bodies, because most of our listeners are probably have, have probably seen one of these ads where women naked usually mm-hmm. are pretending to be meat in some kind of way. And there was even an, a Super Bowl ad, I believe, that NBC 
said, no, we are not going to show that because it was kind of trying to cheekily debunk the idea that if you're a vegan guy, then you're going to lose potency in the bedroom. So the whole ad was showing this woman who was in like a neck brace and looking like she had been beaten up because her vegan boyfriend was such a, you know, rock star now and apparently violent in the bedroom because he'd gotten rid of meat. That she got all beat up in the process. It's like, what? Yeah. Why are you doing this, PETA? Very, very kind of questionable marketing strategies in terms of like, I, 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 you know, devil's advocate, I see what they're doing. Right. They're counteracting the deeply entrenched cultural idea that to be a true masculine man, that involves eating bacon every day and a steak every night. And objectifying women. Right. And and so they're trying to be like, hey, no, look, you can still get a, a sexy woman over here. Look at how she's naked because she doesn't want you to wear fur and stuff. Like you can still get that sexy woman if you're vegan. Yeah, it's just uh, it, to me, it g- goes about it in the totally wrong way to where I would find it really challenging to be uh, an ethical vegetarian feminist and also be like, yeah, Peta, I want to give my money to you because some of that money is going to go to marketing. Yeah. No, not so not so on board about that. But we do need to acknowledge that when it comes to vegetarianism and maybe even more so veganism today, because it's become more popularized than ever before, while there are so many who do it for ethical reasons, they are ethical vegetarians. There is also this other side to it where vegetarianism and veganism sometimes get intertwined with disordered eating. And sure, there definitely is a connection for a lot of people between just plain old health, being healthy and being a vegetarian, which is great. Yeah. And so there was a one study that showed that more than just over half of Americans who are vegetarian say that they are so because of animal welfare reasons and to improve their health. Just under half cite weight loss and environmental concerns. So that health and weight loss thing definitely is an aspect of certain vegetarians decisions to to participate in that lifestyle. But like Kristen said, there's like also this darker stereotype of vegetarianism just being an excuse to solely lose weight and nothing else. Right. And it is worth addressing because there was a 2012 study published in the Journal of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, which found that women suffering from eating disorders are four times likelier to be vegetarian than women without eating disorders. And on top of that, there was a research project out of the University of Minnesota that looked at eating and weight related behaviors in adolescents among 31 Minneapolis schools. And of the 6% of students who reported being vegetarian, 35% did so to lose weight. And of those who did so to lose weight, they were likelier to be involved in or to use, I should say, a series of unhealthy weight control behaviors. Right. Now, now that we've cited that, we should definitely say vegetarianism. We're not saying at all that vegetarianism causes eating disorders or becoming a vegetarian makes you think about food in a disordered way. It's the opposite. It's that some people who already have a disordered relationship with food end up pursuing vegetarianism for slightly different reasons. And we don't want to sensationalize these study findings because 
by the same token, there is this trope that you see a lot, at least that I've noticed a lot uh, on screen of the teenage vegetarian girl who's a bit of a pest and her parents always poo-poo the fact that she won't eat the meat that the mom's cooking and oh, she'll grow out of it one day. And their vegetarian concerns are often trivialized. But I think it's also important, too, to remember that vegetarianism, veganism, should still be a part of a healthy diet. There's still an unhealthy, in other words, way to be vegetarian and vegan. Right, because, I mean, if we're talking about health and being a vegetarian, some studies have found correlations between low-fat vegetarian or vegan diets and altered menstrual cycles, but there are so many different lifestyle factors that can play into that. You might be an extreme athlete. You might have a lot of stress in your life that could contribute to irregular periods. Yeah, I mean, essentially all of the studies, there have been a number of studies actually on uh, menstrual cycles and vegetarian diets looking at things like soy, if you're eating a bunch of soy and getting those um, estrogen-like compounds in your body, whether that's going to throw things off. Um, but it's almost so challenging to completely isolate the impact of a healthy, balanced vegetarian diet that really, as long as it's exactly that, a healthy, balanced vegetarian diet. Yeah. You should be fine and your periods should be as normal as periods really are, which what is that? Well, yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think there's obviously a difference between someone who is quote unquote vegetarian and just eats like Doritos all day and somebody who actually is pursuing uh, uh, Doritos and Protos. Yes. Or or someone who is actually, you know, making sure that they are pursuing a healthy lifestyle that includes exercise, that includes enough protein and vitamins and minerals and things like that. Yeah. But what is not worthwhile at all that that I noticed online just in the process of researching for this episode are these back and forth kind of just jabs made at vegetarian women as caring too much. Go eat some bacon already. Go eat a hamburger. No, that's why don't vegetarians shame someone. If that's what you want to eat and you're healthy about it, what's wrong with that? It's healthier than me eating a bacon sandwich. Oh, bacon. Is that just bacon between two bacons? I was thinking like a BLT, but with uh, heavier on the B. Oh, I was just thinking bacons. Lots of bacons There's a There's a lot of room for interpretation Mm, in that. Bacon. But you know what is also good is... Uh, TLT with some tempeh bacon. Interesting. Oh, I'd be open. I'd be open to it. Anytime you want to make that for me, Kristen. That and some vegan mayonnaise. Good girl. (laughs) Well, vegetarian listeners, now it's time to hear from you. What are all your thoughts on all of this? Momstuff at howstuffworks.com is where you can reach us. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or message us on Facebook and Caroline, do you do you have any questions for our vegetarian listeners? Well, first of all, I'd like to apologize for the number of times I just said bacon. Uh, but no, I I want to know how many ethical vegetarians we have out there versus maybe health related. I know I know people who have chosen vegetarian lifestyle for both reasons. Um, but I also want to know what kind of flack you've caught. I feel like vegetarians can't catch a break from people who are so judgy. Yeah. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're living in a very bacon centric world right now. Let's be honest. So let us know your thoughts. Again, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address or tweet us, Facebook us. Just get in touch. And we've got a couple of letters to share with you right now. 
So I have a letter here from Romy, and subject line, pronunciation of Japanese words. She writes, hey, ladies, great podcast as always. I was listening to your podcast on cosplay, Uh and I have just one little tiff. Uh You guys are totally mispronouncing the word, which is spelled K-A-W-A-I-I. The way you're pronouncing it makes it sound like kawaii, which means scary or fear. Oh, cool. I understand that you are not Japanese speakers, but as a Japanese woman, it makes me cringe every time I hear the word being mispronounced. Although it's kind of funny that the way you guys say it makes it sound like kawaii, which means scary. <laughs> she says, thank you again for the great podcast and keep up the good work. So Romy, here you have it. Me pronouncing kawaii. Am I saying it correctly? Let's hope so. Thanks, Romy. Okay, I have a letter here from Kathleen who has something very good to point out. Um, she says, first of all, I've been listening to your podcast for a while now, and I thoroughly enjoy it. So thank you, Kathleen. She says, I just have a quick question for you. I just listened to your most recent podcast on late night TV and the lack of female hosts and writers. You mentioned women that hosted late night shows, Joan Rivers, Whoopi Goldberg, Chelsea Handler, but I don't think you mentioned the comedian Monique. I believe she had a late night show, although it was short lived, around 2009 or so on BET. If you did mention her, I apologize. There have been so few women hosting late night talk shows. I just wanted to make sure all received some mention. Please don't apologize, Kathleen. We owe you and our listeners an apology. We did not mention Monique. And so, Monique, we, uh, we owe you an apology as well. Yeah. Yeah. So they're at another one. One more. One more. To the still very short list of women who have hosted. You could, you could basically fit them all into one uh, office cubicle still. So that's unfortunate for women, but. But thank you for for adding Monique to the list. Indeed. And speaking of letters about our late night episode, one of our listeners wrote in to recommend Pete Holmes, who had a late night show. He doesn't anymore. But apparently he has a hilarious podcast called You Made It Weird that she really likes. And she said she might even describe him as feminist. So, if you're looking for a new podcast to try out, Pete Holmes's You Made It Weird has been recommended by a Stuff Mom Never Told You listener. So, if you have any recommendations, vegetarian thoughts, all of those things, you can send them to us at Stuff Mom Never Told You at HowStuffWorks.com. And if you want to find links to all of our social medias, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, which include our sources, so that you can follow along with us, there's one place to go, and it's Stuff Mom Never Told ToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 